Uh, we're looking at John's Gospel, chapter 2. Uh, and it's, the, it's, the, it's wedding season, right? August, July, August is wedding season. Um, some of us have been to quite a few weddings already. Some of us have more weddings to go to. And uh, depending on how well we know those people, it can be quite an expensive time of year, can't it? Um, so let's, let's turn to John, John's Gospel. Uh, we're just going to read John chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry, the words are on the screen. Hopefully you can see them. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Some people get a plus one. Jesus gets a plus 12. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus says to the servants, fill, fill the water jars. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. He did not know where it had come from, although the servants who had drawn it out knew. And the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This was the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. John tells us at the end of his book that there were many, many things that Jesus did that he didn't write down. In fact, he says we couldn't write them down because there wouldn't be enough books in the world to write them down. But John says, I have written what I have written so that you may know who he is and believe in him. And then believing in him, have life. John's writing to people that are already alive. But in believing in him, you might have life. There's a couple of things we need to know about ancient wedding parties. Ancient wedding parties are not like parties, wedding parties of today. First of all, ancient wedding parties in Jewish tradition would last about seven days. Everybody in the town that you are from would be invited. Everybody's invited. They don't stay seven days. They might stay for a full day. And then all the, your workmates would be invited and they might stay for a full day. But your family and friends, they would stay for the week. What about that for honeymoon? Honeymoon with the family and friends. And what was different about ancient weddings is today, I'm just going to say this, right? But today, weddings are more or less about the bride, not really about the groom, aren't they? I mean, nobody says, oh, look at his suit, doesn't he look lovely? Nobody says that. It's all about the dress, it's all how she looked. And I, I used to 
when I worked in another place, used to sometimes just be around when there was weddings happening, and sometimes people, not naming any names, would ask me, well, what does she look like? And I would say, well, she was wearing a white dress. <laughs> what what it look like? A dress. <laughs> so, ancient weddings are not like that. It's not about the bride. Actually, it's about the groom. Groom's the most important thing in the ancient wedding. And the groom would have to finance the seven-day wedding. Not the father and the bride, oh no. That's a modern thing. If you want to be a traditionalist, it's the groom who pays. And so if the groom runs out of food or wine, that's a problem. Because the groom is demonstrating that actually he's not up to the task. That actually he doesn't really value his bride as much as he should. Actually, he hasn't saved as much as he should have for this wedding. He's a bad economist, not a good provider. And when the groom runs out of anything, he opens himself up to litigation from the family of the bride. You're disrespecting my daughter. You're not providing for her, and I'm going to sue you. That's how serious it is to run out of wine. And so when Mary sees this, her heartstrings are tugged and she goes to Jesus. Jesus, you can fix this. I know you can make this better. I've heard about the baptism in the Jordan and the dove and the voice from heaven. I remember what the angel told me and everything I've locked up in my heart. I know you can fix this. And so Jesus, Jesus's mother comes to her and says, they've run out of wine. And Jesus says, woman, what to you and me? That's literally what he says. The NIV and NLT try to make it a wee bit more endearing. Some of your Bibles will say, Jesus speaking, dear woman, just to make it a wee bit more intimate. It's not there. He said, gyne. That's, that's not a department in a hospital. That's the word Jesus uses, woman. We don't really have an equivalent. It's not an endearing term, but nor is it a misogynistic term. It's not like, woman, go make me a sandwich. That's not, that's not what Jesus is doing. The closest we can get is ma'am. Polite and formal. Respectful, but formal. What is Jesus doing talking to his mother this way? Ma'am. What to you and me? I think Mary's coming along and saying, Jesus, here's a need. Can you fix it? This is embarrassing from this guy. This is a problem for this guy. Can you fix it? And Jesus is saying, Mary, I don't think you really know what you're asking for. I can do this. I can do this. But in doing this, I light a fuse that ends in my execution. I can do this, and when I do this, it puts me on a collision course with the religious authorities and the religious leaders of our time. I can do it, but you don't really know what you're asking for because this ends in the cross. Jesus says, Mary, you want me to fix the wedding? I can save the wedding, but I'm not here to save the wedding. I'm here to save the world. Do you really know what you're asking for? Do you know what's interesting in John's story? Mary doesn't feature after this until Jesus says to her from the cross, woman, behold your son. 
That's the fuse reaching the detonation point. Jesus says to Mary, the, the difficulty is here, my hour has not yet come. When Jesus sees his mother from the cross, that's when his hour has come. We can follow John's gospel down through um, the chapters, and you'll see that there's different times when Jesus interacts with the Pharisees, but they don't touch him because his hour has not yet come. Where Jesus then comes in John chapter 17, where he prays to the Father, and he says, Father, the hour has come. And from the cross, he looks down, and he says, John 19, verse 26, woman, behold your son. And then he said to his disciple, John, behold your mother. And from that are the disciple took her home to his house. And so Jesus turns to these ceremonial water jars. These ceremonial water jars are interesting in and of themselves. First of all, they were used to store water. Oh, that didn't impress you. Okay. Well, they were used to store water. They were used to store water because before a feast or before a Jewish person ate, actually to this day, they would need to have their hands ceremonially and ritually purified. It's nothing to do with hygiene. Hygiene's got nothing to do with it. All they would do is pour water over their hands. Um, and the reason was because in the Mishnah, and the Mishnah is not the Torah, the Torah better known to you and I as the Old Testament or the commandments or the books of the law. The Mishnah is the teacher's interpretations of the Torah. The, the Pharisees, the rabbis, teachings, interpretations, own understanding of what God really meant when he said what he did. And in the Mishnah, there is, they outline that if you walk through the marketplace, you may be breathing the air that sinners breathe. In the marketplace, you might lift something that a sinner has held on to. You might even brush against them. You might touch that sinner. And so what's important before you eat and put that sinfulness that's on your hands into your mouth, you need to ceremonially, ritually purify yourself. And so the water is poured over one hand and then poured over the other. And one of the rabbis says in the Mishnah, if you pour water over one hand in a single rinsing, then you're clean. But if you pour water over two hands in a single rinsing, then you're not clean. And when you dry the water from your hands, make sure you hold your hands upright because if you hold your hands downward, the water might have gone onto your dirty wrists and the sin germs might have come back onto your hands, and then you're not clean. And while you're washing your hands, you need to recite this. Blessed is he who has made us clean and has commanded us regarding the washing of hands. Here's the deal. It's not in the scripture. Blessed is he who has commanded us regarding the washing of hands. It's not in the Scripture. It's a tradition of man. It's a man-made rule, not God's law. And here, these people with their ceremonial water jars have set aside the priorities and the values and the Word of God 
and they have set in its place the traditions of men, holding them higher, holding them closer, holding them tighter. Later on in Jesus' ministry, Mark records that Jesus gets in trouble for this very thing. In Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, your, your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat bread. Why? It's directly from this commandment in the Mishnah, not a God command, a man command. Why do your disciples not do the ceremonial washing of hands, Jesus? And Jesus says to these Pharisees, you know what? Isaiah was right. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain, they worship me, teaching the precepts of men and neglecting the commandments of God. In doing so, you hold to the traditions of men. He says to them, you are experts in setting aside the commandments of God in order to keep your traditions of men. See, when, you've, when you come across that and whenever we challenge that kind of attitude, no, hang on a minute, uh, there's a really good reason. You know, context, we run the context or we run the interpretation or we run the experience. Or should, let me, if you understood what happened to me, then you would see why this tradition has to be held dear. And God says, yeah, you're experts. You're experts in finding excuses to ignore what I'm saying and to put front and center what you say. Jesus says, your hearts, your hearts are far from me. You know, it would be really easy for us to think of rituals and rites and routines that other people hold tightly that we don't hold. Jesus, in this very passage in John, Jesus already heads off at the pass some of the rites and routines and rituals that man is going to prioritize. We think about the cult of Mary. Here Jesus is distancing himself from Mary. Mary was a great woman. Mary was Jesus' mother. She was a woman of faith. And we see her appear through the New Testament a number of times, not just in the Gospels. But Mary was just a woman. At one stage, Jesus is walking through a town and someone shouts out, Blessed is the womb that bore you. Sound familiar? And Jesus says, Blessed is anyone who does the will of God. Heading it off at the pass. Another place, Jesus is, is in a house and his mother and brothers come to him because they think he's taken this Messiah thing a wee bit too seriously. And people come and they say, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside. And Jesus says, who, who are my mothers and brothers? My mother and brother is anyone who does the will of the Father who has sent me. That's who my mother and brother, Jesus putting that distance there. We're not elevating a man-made tradition. It's about the mission of Christ. It's about the gospel. It's about the salvation of mankind. Maybe there are those in another tradition who want to communicate that God is anti-alcohol. I don't know what they do with John chapter 2. God is clearly against drunkenness. Bible expressly forbids it. Do not be drunk. Can't really argue with that. But God is not against alcohol. God's will for us is to live a life in fullness. The reason I write is so that you believe and in believing have life. 
And God is opposed to anything that hinders us having that relationship with Him. It could be alcohol. It could be. It could be materialism too. It could be quiet resentment. It could be that. It could be pride or arrogance. It could be hypocrisy. But God is not anti-alcohol. Let me read you Deuteronomy chapter 14. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and of the firstborn of your herd and flock, and you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the, and, and if the way is too long for you, so that you are not able to carry the tithe the Lord your God has blessed you with, because the place is too far, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place the Lord your God chooses and spend all the money on whatever you desire. Or oxen, or sheep, or wine, or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there, here's the important part, before the Lord your God, front and center and in His presence. You can have whatever your heart desires if it doesn't inhibit you from being before the Lord your God. Now, God is not against alcohol. In the master of ceremonies, if you look at John chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, you see that the wine is brought, the water is brought to the master of ceremonies, the maitre d', the guy who's responsible for the smooth transition of the wedding that isn't going very well because we've run out of wine. And they bring it to him and he begins to taste it. Now, this guy is a maitre d'. He's been a, he goes to, going to weddings is his job. He's tasted wine before. He's tasted good wine and he's tasted bad wine. He knows what landlords like to do. Same thing that grooms that don't have a lot of cash like to do, they bring out the good wine. And when the alcohol begins to anesthetize your taste buds, then the bad wine's brought out so you don't notice that it's bad wine. But he says, whoa, this, this is the good wine. I don't know if you've had a glass of wine and then had a good glass of wine. It's really hard to distinguish a good glass of wine after an average glass of wine, unless the good glass of wine is a really good glass of wine. And this guy who knows his wine says, whoa, this is good stuff. You don't get that effect with grape juice. You just don't. Just saying. So Jesus is not against alcohol. Jesus is not against fun. Jesus is not against celebrating. He's not pro-drunk. He's not pro-drunk. But he is pro-party. And Jesus says to the servants, fill them up. Fill them to the neck. I, I, before I had become aware of this story, I liked Jesus. But now that I'm more familiar with this story, I really like Jesus. And so Jesus says, fill him to the neck. Now, there's, there's, six, there's six water stone jars that are there. Each stone jar holding between 20 or 30 gallons. That's six stones, 20, 30 gallons. That's a, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, because numbers are my thing. Um, that's 150 to 180 gallons of wine. 
That, that's a lot of wine. That's, that's uh, six to 800 bottles of wine. And for those of you that don't drink wine, that's 28 kegs of beer. I thought it was important to explain that to some people in this room. So whenever Mary comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, they're out of wine, Jesus says, I've got this. And he changes the water to wine. Okay, what's the point? There was wine vessels at that party because they'd run out of wine. There was wine vessels there because what would the wine that was run out of be in in the first place? Jesus doesn't say, go get the wine vessels. He says, see the ceremonial water jars? Go get them. He's making a point. Because those ceremonial water jars can only hold ceremonial water. Anything else that goes in there defiles those jars and they can't be used. They need to be broken. And stone, stone not clay, stone jars... How do you drill out a bit of rock to make a jar out of it? That's an expensive process in those days. And you want us to break them? Jesus says, don't get the wine vessels, get the stone jars. Bring them to me and make sure every part of the inside is covered with the water. And Jesus now is going to defile those jars by filling them with wine. Ritual? Routine? Formalism? Nope. We're not doing it. We, we surely, surely this isn't necessarily applicable to us. You know, it's really easy to look at it, you know, other denominations and other places with their smells and their bells and their, and their rituals and routines and think, you know, well, we, we, we don't do that, do we? Or do we? I, I can't affect what happens in other places. I can't affect what happens in others' heads, but I can affect what happens here. And I have to ask, when we come on a Sunday morning, are we just coming because that's what you do on a Sunday morning? Are we coming to stand and sing and sit and listen because that's what you do for an hour on a Sunday morning? You know, we can come to me. I come. I come. Well, I got something to tell you. God does not require your attendance. What he does requires your function. You look at the pictures of the church, a body. Who would have a limp arm running by, hanging by their side and say, but I have an arm, it's here. God does not require your attendance. He requires your function. Or say, I sang, sang from the heart. I listened, I listened intently. Okay, did you engage? Did you serve? Did you fellowship? I get that sometimes fellowshipping is hard to do on a Sunday morning. That's what life groups are for. But you know what makes life groups remarkable? Do you know what? We can go to any society and any club, and there are lots of people that look different, but maybe they're all into football. They have that thing in common. Or maybe they're all into history. Or maybe they're all into music. There's always a single identity that holds that group that appears to be diverse together. Sometimes it's the diversity that provides the single identity. But when we look God's people, 
totally different. Different ages, different gender, different stages of life, different parts of society, different jobs, different identities. I don't want to find a single identity group. I want to be part of a community that is truly di diverse. And sometimes we say, you know what, but I, I do come and I do serve. Okay, good, 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 good. Why? Do we serve to win the favor of God? Because God says, not by works. Do we serve to win the favor of man? We don't do nothing to win the favor of man. What does that matter? Or I praise. Why? Because of the blessing that I get. Really? Bible says, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. It's not about my blessing. It's about yours. But I read. I read Christian books. Good, good. Sometimes, sometimes good. Some are more good than others. It's not okay to base my spiritual walk on somebody else's worship CD or somebody else's book. It's not okay. How would it be if I only ever related to you through someone else's experience of you? Imagine if I only ever spoke to Paul using words I've heard Chantel say to him. There would come a point when he would say, you are weird. In fact, there would come... Okay, he's already saying that, but there would come a point when he would say, you know what, be over there. Don't come near me because it's not okay. We cannot base our walk with God based on the regurgitation of someone else's words and thoughts. It's got to be our relationship. And we've got to hear it firsthand. Well, I do hear it firsthand, Johnny. I read, I study the Bible. Okay, good. I think that's great. That's a big tick, and a lot better studying the Bible than reading the latest Christian author. Not that Christian authors aren't, aren't a good thing. Better by, by Bible better. But why? Why? Why do you read it? Because you're teaching it? And my biggest problem is when I read the Bible for teaching, if that's all I'm reading the Bible for, I'm not deepening my religion. I need to read it just to be with him, not just to teach someone else. It's got to be about my relationship. See, all these other things can prefix on the external. When Jesus comes along and he defiles the pots, he says we're not doing formalism. We're not doing ritual. We're not doing routine. We need to reach for more. Now you may be thinking, but Johnny, okay, get everything you're saying, understand, but just don't think, it's, I still don't think it applies. Okay, let's talk about prayer. How many times have you started your prayer with, yeah, God, I really just want to? Now, start talking to your friends and family that way. Come in, come in from work and say to your partner, yeah, partner, I really just want to watch TV. Okay, what do you want to watch? Well, yeah, I really just want to watch Suits. Okay, where do you want to do that? I really just want to do that. There would come a point where they're like, what's wrong? Or repeating, the, you know that we do that, Jesus Lord, thank you, Father, Jesus Lord, in our prayers? Start talking to other people that way. 
Hiya, Michael. I just want to say, Michael, it's really great. Husband of Hazel, I would like this. What? He would go, what are you doing? It's a learned behavior. It's a repetition. It's not okay. You've got to have this heart relationship. More, Lord? Is that too close to the bone? Imagine you go to someone's house and they put down a meal in front of you and you go, more? Really? Really? No, it's not okay. We need to communicate from the heart of who we are to the very heart of the Father. That's where we need to go. And Jesus is saying, I'm not doing these repetitive prayers. I'm not doing these learned rituals and these learned routines. We're not doing it. We're defiling it. It's like turning up to the White House and changing your baby's nappy in the desk of the Oval Office and maybe not cleaning it up, just leaving it there. That's where we're at. And I did clean that up. Jesus says, you Pharisees, you're transfixed on the external. You're transfixed on the appearances. You wash the outside of the cup. You're concerned what's going on on the outside, and you don't realize your problem is not what's on the outside. Your problem is what is coming out of you. One of the rabbis taught, actually, that it was okay to handle excrement. That didn't make you ritually unclean, provided you poured water over your hands. And Jesus is saying to these people, do you know what? It's not what comes out of you, because what comes out, Jesus literally says, what comes out of you goes to the sewer. We know what he's talking about. So that's not the problem. It's what's inside that matters. Jesus challenges this empty formalism. An adherence or dependence on external forms of actions or repetitive rituals. So what does it mean? It's about relationship. Don't we know that? Don't we know that? And yet so quickly and so easily we lurch back into ritual and routine because it's what's in the heart of man. We need to work hard to put distance between those things. It's about relationship with our Father. It's about a fun relationship with our Father. The Pharisees say to Jesus, you're, you're always eating and drinking. What's that about? And Jesus is like, I like hanging out. With my, I want to be with my guys. And when we're together, we're having a pizza. It's going to happen. And we're going to have a wee Shiraz with the pizza. Because I want to deepen my relationship with them. And that's a dynamic that we need to strive for. Where we're hanging out with him and we're hanging out with one another. We're not just checking off an hour on a Tuesday night and a Sunday morning. It's about deep, honest, transparent relationships with our brothers and sisters. And it's not about playing nice. It's not about the external it's about being honest about what is internal and seasoning that relationship with the same grace that God has shown you so that the other person who's honest with you, what did Chantel pray earlier? It's your kindness that brings us to repentance. And yet when you talk to the man in the street and ask him about us, not just, not Carrick Vineyard, Christians, what will he tell you? 
moralistic, judgmental people. But we need to stand up long and loud and bang that drum off. It's his kindness, it's his mercy, it's his grace that brings us to repentance. I would like you to stand with me, please. I don't know if you know this Jesus or if the Jesus you know is a Jesus that someone else wants you to know or a Jesus that someone else has a relationship with you. I don't know if you're one of those people that seeks the blessing more than the blesser. In performing, in performing this miracle, John tells us Jesus demonstrated his glory, his power, and his purpose. That's what we need to see, and that's what we need to strive for. So if we're not walking in that kind of relationship with our Lord, today is a good day to begin that journey. I want you to ask yourself, when you think about your prayers, what is it you say? And what's stopping you saying the things that you wish you could say? When you think about your fellowship, how deep are those relationships with your brothers and sisters? How do you feel about confessing your sin to those who have your best interests at heart? And when it comes to service, and I'm not just talking about joining the children's team, although Jillian will appreciate that. I'm talking about being present, present on a Sunday morning, where I'm singing not for my blessing, but for your blessing. Present in life group, where I'm not looking for people that share my interests, but actually people that don't. And being willing to step outside that comfort zone, zone and to pray and to ask and to serve. Religion tells us, clean yourself up, get your act together, and then God will think you're okay. And Jesus says, I see you as you are. Let's take a seat and get to know one another a little bit better.